0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're sharing the secret to having glazed donut skin, hacking our blood sugar to optimize our hormones and energy, or talking about how real women actually learn to love their bodies. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. I wanted to have this guest on because I love her work on social media, and her book is brilliant, but also because the world is hard, and I wanted little easy tools that wouldn't be overwhelming to add into our lives, but that would also make a real noticeable difference. And she massively delivered. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Julie Smith to the podcast. Dr. Julie has been a clinical psychologist for over 10 years. She has over 3.5 million followers on TikTok and was named as one of its top 100 creators. She is the BBC Radio 1 life hack Psychologist and has been featured by Women's Health, The Telegraph, The Times, The Mail on Sunday, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, and many more. Her new book, which is absolutely fabulous, is called Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before and is available wherever books are sold. This episode is all about little hacks that make a huge difference in our mental health. We talk about how to get out of bed when it feels hard, how to figure out what your values actually are, how to build up your tolerance for uncertainty, the easiest happiness hack everyone should be doing daily but isn't, how to snap out of a funk, how to stop over ruminating, how to stop anxiety in its tracks, how to let go of things that are out of your control. I needed this one <laughs> personally quite bad, and Dr. Julie's advice was so helpful, how to increase willpower and stick to your goals, how to be happier in romantic relationships and in friendships, how to overcome jealousy in comparison, and how to deal with fear of death, which might sound super heavy, but I think is so important to talk about, and Dr. Julie has such a hope-filled, beautiful, and life-affirming take. From the bottom of my heart, I hope that you find something helpful in this episode that you can do today to fill your cup and feel a little bit lighter in the world. Dr. Julie and I would love to hear what's resonating or anything that you're trying. So please screenshot and tag us as you're listening. I am at Liz Moody and she is at Dr. Julie on Instagram and at Dr. Julie Smith on TikTok. And if you are inspired to share with a friend, family member, or coworker, is so appreciated. This is one of those episodes that I really hope as many people hear as possible so we can all make these little vital shifts in our mental health. So please, if you know anyone who could benefit, shoot them a quick link. We also have a very fun giveaway for this episode, so make sure that you stay tuned to the end to find out how to enter. Okay, let's get into mental health hacks with Dr. Julie Smith. All right, Dr. Julie, I'm so excited to have you here. I am such a huge fan of, gosh, all of your social media and your book, so I'm really excited to get into some mental health hacks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to love this too because I love listening to a British accent. I find it already <laughs> calming and soothing just to have your voice in my ear. so thank you for being born where you were born. It's appreciated. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, let's just get right into it. So this is one that I'm personally invested in. What is a hack for those days where it feels really hard to get out of bed when you're just kind of like laying in bed and you know you have this big day ahead of you, but you can't get yourself to get up and go for it?
1: We all have those days, right? When the urge is to just keep hitting snooze and stay where you are. And certainly I I have experienced that over the last sort of year or so where I've been staying up late to make content and then having to get up early with the children and stuff like that. So I guess for me, it's having the children, it's having something that matters more to you than the comfort that you're in. So it matters more to me to be able to get up and get my children to school on time than it does for me to feel comfortable in bed. I guess when you have something in your day that means a lot. So when you create lots of things in your life that give you a sense of purpose, that can sort of help you to override that hump of not really feeling the energy yet during the day, or even something probably more lighthearted than that. I don't know, it might be that you don't have that in your life right now, or you're in a a job that you hate, but you're kind of stuck where you are, for example. And I get that people are in those situations. And in those situations, I think it's often about creating these small enjoyable things that help that behavior to become easier so if it means setting up your coffee machine so that it starts making your coffee for you at the time you have to get up then sometimes that can help you to make that move or some people kind of set their alarm outside of the room so that they have to get up to switch it off or you know there are lots of little things that you can do depending on how you work as a person and what you want to get out of it some people will go with the incentive of, okay, my coffee's ready, I can get up. or And some people will go with, uh, oh, the alarm's going to destroy me if I don't go and switch it off now. And it's in the next room. So once you're up, then you're up. There are lots of different ideas, but everybody's really different. So, you know, you suggest one thing to someone and they'll say, no way, but it really works for the next person. But I think it's find your own thing. Find your own thing that works for you. Try things out and see how they work for you.
0: And I think this is important too. I was just talking about this on Instagram, but instead of being like, oh, I should be able to have the motivation, you're talking about creating extrinsic motivation, whether it is your children or your coffee or your phone. It's not like something's wrong with you when you're lying there and you're like, get up, get up, get up. It's like you maybe need to find the extrinsic motivation that works for you.
1: Yeah, you can really utilize that. And of course, intrinsic motivation is really powerful in helping us to do things when we don't feel like it. And that is often really those moments where we just tell ourselves that we're on the right path. So I've used that a few times when I've had to do things here in the UK, when I've been sort of promoted my book and stuff like that. And I've gone on TV and I wake up in the morning in a hotel. So I'm without my family and it's super early and I'm thinking, why am I putting myself through this? You know, this is really nerve wracking. And actually then I instantly remind myself of why I'm doing this and that there is this sort of wider purpose for all of this and that it involves me practicing what I preach and living by my values, which involves courage and doing things that you're afraid of just to keep going with that course. Those sorts of intrinsic motivations where you say, it's okay, it's uncomfortable, but I'm on the right path. So if you're having to get up super early for a job that is going to lead to the career that you want, then you you have to clock into that intrinsic motivation, which is, yes, this is hard and it means I'm on the right path. But when you don't necessarily feel you're in that place and life is just really tough, which it is for a lot of people, then you can really utilize this sort of extrinsic motivations, I think.
0: Do you have any tips or hacks to know what our values are or what a fulfilling satisfying life looks like for us i think it can be hard to go after a goal when so many of us are disconnected from what we even want which is like why we i don't know go after what the media tells us we want or we should have this body or buy these things we don't know what our goals or values are
1: yeah and and you know a lot of people come to therapy and they'll say i'm not really sure what the problem is but things just don't feel right things feel empty or I don't really feel like I've got a sort of sense of purpose. And often that's when people have become pulled away from their value system. So there'll be certain things in their life that matter a lot to them. But when we don't have clarity on that, and we're not really sure what those things are, then life just pulls us in different directions. You just find that you're less happy. One of the exercises that is often done in therapy and that I've sort of put in in the book is around little values check-ins things that don't take really long time. You don't necessarily have to sit down with a therapist to do them, but you can sit down in pen and paper, scribble out the kind of different areas of your life. So it might be like health, lifelong learning, family relationships, intimate relationships, friendships, creativity, faith, all of those different things that you can think of. And each box you put in there just a few words or a few sentences about what matters most to you in that area of your life. So not what you want to happen to you, but the kind of person you want to be. So how you want to show up in that area of your life. So good times or bad, what kind of parent do I want to be? Or good times or bad, what kind of wife do I want to be? Or what's important to me in my career? How do I want to be approaching that no matter what's going on in the detail? It's all looking at what kind of attitude you want to bring, what kind of mindset you want to bring to the different areas of your life. And there you get this clarity on, oh, okay, so this is my values. This is who I want to be, because we can't control what's going to happen to us. But you can look at, am I living in line with these values for myself? So one of my values for myself, I've got things like just words, really, like enthusiasm and courage and stuff like that. And that's when, particularly like if I know I'm uncomfortable doing something, and I'm having to use some sort of courage to do it, then I know I'm living in line with my values, even though it's difficult. And so it enables you to get through those difficult moments, knowing that you're on the right path, which again, gives you that intrinsic motivation as well.
0: If you write down these values, you figure them out and your life doesn't line up with them like at all. If you want to move through the day with ease, but you feel stressed all the time, if you want to be powerful at work, but you find yourself having a hard time standing up for yourself, is there a way to not just have it make you feel bad about yourself? Is there a way to have it be motivating versus depressing?
1: That's a really key part of the process is making sure that it's not a path to self-criticism, but it's something you approach with curiosity because it can all be shifted. It's all about things you can control, which is your behavior and your actions and the way you approach problems. So Often we'll get people to, but once they've got that sort of the words or the sentences about what their values are, then you'll get them to just use a scale of sort of naught to ten. Say how important is this to you, or are these values to you in your life? Zero being not at all, ten is the most important. So you get a sort of rough idea. Then you grade it again on that same scale, but this time how much you're living in line with it. You'll find that on all the different areas and the different squares that you filled in some of them you'll be living closely in line with and you'll feel really good about and then others you'll notice a discrepancy so something might be really important to you like i don't know it's your health but you living in line with it is not so good at the moment because maybe you've been working really hard or maybe you've just had your third baby and you can't exercise at the moment because you've got three babies to look after and all of those sorts of things so life in general pulls us away from different values at different times. We can't do them all perfectly all of the time. It's often about balance and redirection. I'll often do those values check-ins and I'll notice that, okay, I'm not going to use it as a tool for self-loathing. I'm doing it with a purpose of living closer in line with the values that I have or being closer towards the person that I want to be. It's a path towards improvement, but it's only going to be a path to improvement if you use it that way instead of using it as a tool for attacking yourself.
0: Are there any hacks for accepting negative circumstances that are out of our control? I'm thinking things like infertility or financial or health circumstances or not finding a partner when you really want one.
1: I would say no, there are no hacks. It's a life practice of being able to tolerate uncertainty, which we do as human beings, we have to do that all the time, right? We were talking the other day, a few of us about the sort of health anxiety that is part of that psychological fallout of the pandemic, right? What if, what if I get some sort of virus, whether it be that one or another one, and things end tomorrow? What if my health deteriorates? And it's almost like for a lot of us that that the pandemic sort of rocked our sense of certainty not by creating new uncertainty, but by just reminding us that life is uncertain because it's not the only uncertainty. There are lots of others. So I think a lot of it is about reminding yourself, yes, there is that uncertainty. There's also the uncertainty of crossing the road every day. You go out to do meaningful stuff that gives your life meaning and value and purpose. There are certain uncertainties that you're willing to tolerate in order to live that life, there's this constant balance. There'll be other uncertainties that you're not willing to tolerate because they don't allow it necessarily allow you to live the same life of meaning, you know, I will go and cross the road to get to work, but I'm not gonna go and do a bungee jump tomorrow just for the fun of it. There are certain uncertainties that I won't tolerate because they don't necessarily bring me enough meaning to do that, but there are others that I am willing to tolerate when my children are old enough to leave home, I will have to tolerate the uncertainty of knowing how they are and what they're doing every minute of the day and whether they're safe and that kind of thing. But you do that because it's your value as a parent, let's say, to allow your children to be independent people. So you are doing it a lot of the time. And I think we don't give ourselves enough credit for how much uncertainty we actually tolerate.
0: That's so interesting. I think about that. I'm afraid of flying or I'm working on being a person who's no longer afraid of flying. It's been like a lifelong fear I'm trying to work on. And I do think about my flights in that sense of like, am I willing to die to go to New York on this trip? When the trip aligns with my values, it's easier for me to get on the plane and take that flight versus when the trip feels not aligned with the person that I am or want to be. So it's really interesting thinking about that uncertainty tolerance Directly in terms of our values. Not that I'm actually risking death by getting on a plane, but I have noticed that thought process happening, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We do it so much of the time, but it's often when something comes along that we don't deal with every day, then it can kind of spark this new stress response that just makes us go, oh, can I tolerate this? Is this too much? And is it worth tolerating? You take the flight because it means something to you to have a holiday or vacation every year or whatever it is. I think it's a life practice. I think the closest thing to a hack there is building your awareness of what your values are again, so that you know what you're willing to tolerate and why.
0: Do you think there's a way to up your uncertainty tolerance? Oh, good question. Practice, for sure. I think anything
1: that you're trying to do, you don't rush to do the Hardest, most difficult thing first, you just take step by step and gradually increase that and do it over time. So, I think, yeah, it's the thing that you do every day becomes the easiest thing to do. If you're making, let's say, meaningful courage a part of your lifestyle, because that means something to you to live in that way, then it will become just what you do and who you are. So, maybe, yeah, maybe creating that as a part of sense of your identity. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is how I live. It's difficult at times because I have to tolerate uncertainty and I don't know what's coming. But the cost of short-term comfort of knowing everything is long-term unhappiness quite possibly.
0: You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. There is so much incredible science behind red light therapy. There's research going all the way back to 1903 that won a Danish physician a Nobel Prize for showing that exposure to concentrated red light accelerated physical healing. And research from NASA has shown that it boosts the production of growth factor proteins and collagen, among many other incredible things. I am obsessed with red light therapy. It is so science-supported, and I've personally seen huge, huge benefits – I use Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device, which is a red light panel, so I'm not limiting its benefits to my face. I feel like the masks are so popular right now, but I would like to expose my entire body to the red light. That way, it helps with not only my skin, my collagen production, but also increasing energy, decreasing pain, repairing cellular damage, improving mental health and cognitive function, and so much more. You are not spending that much more money to get a panel versus a mask, but you get a much more versatile device with way more powerful effects. Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device gives you professional-grade equipment straight at your home for the best price that I have seen anywhere. You can stand your Max panel on the floor on any flat surface, or you can hang it on the back of a door. It is really lightweight, and it is so easily stored away in the closet when you are done using it for the day. You only need 10 to 20 minutes, so Zach and I actually meditate in front of it naked. Uh, But there's lots of ways that you can stack it into your routine, so you do whatever sounds good to you. Check out Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device now on bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code LizMoody at checkout. Bond Charge products are all HSA, FSA eligible, giving you tax-free savings of up to 40%. And for a limited time on top of that, my listeners will get 15% off when you order from bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code LizMoody at checkout. That is B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com. You will also get free shipping and a 12-month warranty. Go now to get this exclusive offer that is BondCharge.com with promo code Liz Moody to get 15% off. A lot of what we talk about on this podcast are low-hanging fruit, little things you can add to your day that will make a huge difference in your health or mindset or just life in general. This product is one of those things for me. While a lot of health stuff is cumulative and all about consistency, this is one of those few things that I notice a difference literally right away. I'm talking, of course, about AG1 by Athletic Greens. I know some of you are scared that this is an overhyped product because you hear so many people talking about it, but I would never promote something that I didn't stand behind entirely. And in this case, it's just one of those things that's super hyped because it's actually that good. Here's the basics. You take a scoop of AG1 and mix it into water, juice, or a smoothie. I like water because I actually really like the taste of AG1, but if you're less keen on the taste, my hot tip is to shake it with ice cubes. It makes a huge difference. But I do really love the flavor. People always ask if I'm lying when I say that, and I'm not. I've really come to crave it. It tastes like bubble gum or tropical vanilla. I will say I might crave it because it makes me feel so good It's like a Pavlovian response where I'm obsessed with the flavor because I associate it with how good I feel after drinking it. Okay, so you take a scoop, chug whatever you're drinking it with, and boom, you have this incredible insurance that you've gotten your foundational nutrition in, regardless of how the rest of the day goes. Because we're trying to eat all the veggies, all the mushrooms and seaweeds, but we're not perfect, and that's okay. AG1 has 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, and adaptogens to cover your bases. Right after I drink it, I feel like a gentle energy. It's not at all jittery like caffeine, but more just like you just woke up from the best night of sleep. It gives me a ton of mental clarity and clears any sluggishness or brain fog that I have, which is why even though a lot of people start their day with it, I actually prefer to drink mine in the early afternoon, right when I have that 3 p.m. slump. And it's not a placebo effect. AG1 has so many ingredients that have been extensively researched for their brain health effects, like rhodiola root dry extract, hawthorn berry, and rosemary, just to name a few. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. And they're third party tested, which is always so important to look for. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash healthier together. The vitamin D3 and K2 is amazing. You actually always wanna make sure that you look for K2 with your D3 because the K2 helps the D transport calcium to your bones where it's needed rather than calcifying in your arteries, which we do not want. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash healthier together to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's get back to the episode. Let's go into happiness like on a day-to-day basis. If you were gonna prescribe one low-hanging fruit or one hack for us to just raise our happiness levels on a day-to-day basis, maybe something less common that we haven't heard before, what would you say?
1: I'd say looking after the basics. So in the UK, uh, you guys call it soccer over there, don't you? But we call it football over here. So (laughs) it's so confusing. But the idea is if you don't want to get a goal scored against your team in soccer, then what you need is a solid back four. So you're four defense players. And it's kind of the same with mental health that if you don't want to become vulnerable at any point to becoming very unhappy or even unwell, you need to keep that team of defense players in place. I would say rather than four, it's five. So I would say social connection, good nutrition, routine, sleep and exercise or moving the body. We call them the basics because we say, oh, you know, yeah, I do that already. And I do a bit of this and that. But they are the first things we let slide when we're not doing so good. We see them as negotiable, right? You know, I'll sleep when I'm done with this project or whatever it is. And you take anyone on this earth, no matter how healthy or strong or happy they are at the moment, and you start messing around with those five things, that person will become vulnerable to unhappiness, mental illness, whatever that is. So I would say rather than thinking of this one silver bullet that will work for everyone every time, I would say it's those five things. If you can keep nurturing those, Not in a way that says, oh, I'm no good at this and I should give up, but in a way that says, I know I'm not going to do it perfectly all the time because life does that to us, right? You have late nights or you might not exercise for a little while and you go back to it. The idea is to constantly keep in touch with those basics or the foundations of health and just keep tweaking them. Keep saying, what's the one thing I could do today that is going to get me back on track with my routine or is there one friend i could contact today because i haven't actually spoken to a, one of my friends in a week
0: i like the idea of keeping that checklist in your head it's like yeah if you get to the end of the day and you've like maybe eaten well but you haven't moved your body you could go for a walk or maybe you could text a friend if you haven't had any social connection or something like that it's a nice yeah. just little very short checklist to keep in your head
1: and i think there is that tendency to sort of underestimate them because like you say we've heard them before and you kind of start to sound like someone's mother but actually When I was working with people in therapy and stuff, I would get them to get a post-it note, put those things inside the wardrobe door so that every morning they're just clocking them and saying, what's one thing I could do today? Because no matter what really complex, amazing therapy techniques you have, if that person hasn't got the foundations there, then it's like trying to hold sand in your hands. It's just almost impossible. So you have to get the foundations right before you can start doing stuff on top of that. You're in a much better place to face anything if you've got those solid.
0: What if somebody doesn't feel like those foundations are available to them? Maybe not all of them, but they feel lonely and like they don't actually have social connections that are satisfying in their life or they can't afford good nutrition or they're chronically ill and can't move their body. Do you just double up on the ones that are available to you? Depending on what the
1: situation is. If you're not able-bodied and exercise isn't an option, then it's just not an option. But when one is missing because of your circumstances, and there is potential to start changing your circumstances. I would say boost all the others, get yourself as strong as possible so that you then feel in a place where you can start to work on that one that is a struggle or that you're, you're missing for some reason.
0: That makes sense. If you're in a funk, and you just like are like, ugh, like I'm in a shit mood. I've been in a shit mood all day. Do you recommend going for one of those things or is there something else we should be doing to kind of snap out of the funk?
1: With snapping out of a funk, I think there are certain things that work quickly because that's what we need, right? Is we need something that's yeah. going to just shift that mood. I think for me, some of those most powerful things include moving the body, not in a way that says, when you're in a funk, find the motivation to grab all your stuff and go down the gym and do something that's really boring to you. It doesn't mean that. like put your favorite music on and dance around your house until you're exhausted. When you do that, you're doubling up there because you've got the the exercise because any physical movement counts, that will be shifting your biochemistry and that will be shifting your mood. But also if you put on carefully chosen tracks that you know shift your mood into a positive place, so no Celine Dion or whatever, nothing really sad, (laughs) just go for the stuff that lifts your mood and makes you feel buoyant. Or maybe for some people that would be singing, putting on music that you can sing to and create that expression that also can shift a mood. Some people over here, cold showers are really on trend right now. Everybody's getting on that bandwagon of a short, sharp cold shower that can, again, just give you that shift. Breath work is another one. Lots of people are experimenting with the way that you breathe can really impact on how you feel. So it might be that you might be in a very stressful funk and you need to relax and calm. And breathing is one of the best and fastest ways to start calming the body. Or it might be that you have low mood or something like that and you want to sort of energize your body, in which case you breathe in a different way and you can create a new effect.
0: Do you recommend for the breathwork, just like Googling like breathwork for energy, breathwork for calm?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are different, there are lots of different things around, aren't there? I know that sort of Wim Hof is putting lots of great stuff out there about breath work. I don't have anyone specifically to recommend. I'd say do a bit of research and, and see what's out there.
0: Out of curiosity, do you think it's productive to sit in negative emotions ever? Do they serve a function? Does it cross a line at some point from being functional to being detrimental? I think it's how you do it.
1: If you can learn to tolerate and sit with a negative emotion with a sense of curiosity so what is going on here what am I feeling give it a name and simply by labeling an emotion it doesn't matter if you label it in the same way that other people label it you could give it its own name but if you create a label for the way that you're feeling so that you recognize it and you can identify it that already starts to take some of the power out of it because you're seeing it for what it is, which is an experience washing over you rather than who you are. So especially with emotions that often have a negative connotation, lots of women struggle to feel anger, for example, because culturally it wasn't okay for them to express anger or something like that. And in those situations, it can be really, really helpful to sit with that emotion, allow yourself to feel it with curiosity, notice where it is in your body, label it, And then allow it to come and go in ways like any other feeling. Because where we try to push away an emotion, often that's pretty futile and it will just keep coming back whenever we stop or let our guard down. If you're willing to feel it in the moment and almost welcome it, then it will wash over you like any other emotion. It won't last forever. The work of therapy is about sitting with emotions in a productive way because we look at it with curiosity. We see what we can learn from it. We see what it means about how we move forward. If we go down this path in our minds with this kind of thought process, is this where we want to be going? And if we go in this direction with these thought process or this perspective, is that where I want to be going? How is that going to help me to feel different? There's a whole sort of process of observing the experience with curiosity so that you can learn from it about where you want to be because if you sit and ruminate for example when you're feeling low and you ruminate on all the worst things that have ever happened to you over and over again without any sort of productive thought then that's going to make your mood feel worse and rumination is one of the key
0: factors that maintain depression do you think that the secret to truncating rumination is to label it yes if you're starting to ruminate
1: then if you're not aware of it It will carry on for hours, days even before you've realized it. But if you can notice that you're ruminating, and gosh, I've been thinking about this over and over for the last hour, I'm ruminating again. Just by doing that, you're taking those thoughts from right in front of your eyes where you can't see anything else to pulling them back to like arm's length. And then you can see them for what they are, which is one perspective of which there are many. And then you're already creating an opportunity. think in a different way but without that awareness forget
0: it i always think of ruminating as associated with depression like ruminating being too stuck in the past almost feels like depression to me and being too stuck in a future that only exists in your mind feels like anxiety to me do you have any tips or tricks to help us when we're stuck in a future that only exists in our head
1: I guess that would be worry, wouldn't it, where you're going over and over about some future event that hasn't happened yet. And each time you do that, when you kind of play out that movie in your mind about the worst case scenario, you're re-triggering that stress response and you're creating more anxiety in your system. When I'm working with people who are worrying or if I'm worrying myself, I think the key thing is to look at, yes, label it, notice it, label it, and then ask yourself, is this something I can do something about? If the answer is yes, then it's time to sit down and work out what you can do about it. So, if you can create some sort of productive action out of it, let's say you're worried that your car might break down on a really long journey and what that would mean for you, there's probably something you can do about that to a degree, right? You could go and get your car checked out before you go on your journey, right? But if you're worried about what might happen to the earth in the next 100 years, in terms of will the earth end in the next 10 years? then that's something you can't control. And so you could sit and spend your time worrying about it and the only result of that will be more and more anxiety. Those are the thoughts to then let go of and leave behind. The ones where you can take some control over it are the ones where you can go, how can I turn this into meaningful action that's going to help me move forward? Some worry thoughts can help you because they're saying, hang on, here's something that could happen. Do something about it. And other thoughts are, Not things you could do anything about. They're the ones to ask yourself is this going to help me to keep going with this thought process or am I best to move on?
0: As somebody with anxiety, I have two important follow ups there. One, I think a big way that my anxiety works is it tricks me into thinking things are in my control that are in fact not within my control at all. Like I think that happens with the wellness world a lot where we're like, oh, if we like eat a certain way, we'll protect ourselves from cancer. Or when I'm booking flights, I'm literally like, what's the make of the airline? I'm judging the pilots when I get on the plane, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any ways we can tell what's in our control and what's actually not?
1: No, it's interesting, is it? Because when you say the kind of idea about, you know, if you just do X, Y and Z, then you'll never get cancer or you'll never, you know, you'll never die of an awful disease. or And there is no way of us knowing. Again, it's that need for certainty about everything, isn't it? How could I know exactly which things I can control and which things I can't? And even the things you can have some control over. It's never 100% control. There is always a level of uncertainty in everything. And I guess that's what we learned in the pandemic, right? You can feel like life is sorted and then something else that you never thought of can sweep in and take it all away. But in some ways, I think that can create a new sense of meaning in itself that we have to live as if there is a long future. But if you can't guarantee that future, which none of us can in reality because that's how life is, then what meaning do we take from that? Knowing that, how do I then want to live today? What am I grateful for about today? And so in some ways, uncertainty can create a positive sense of meaning and purpose in that while I will live as if I know there is a long future for me in terms of I'm not going to just do something impulsively and that's going to jeopardize next week for me, I'm not going to sell my house and use all my money on a whatever. But knowing that it could all be taken away at some point, enables you to access gratitude for today, which makes you happier. But again, it all comes back to that tolerating uncertainty of, there is uncertainty, I cannot get rid of uncertainty ever about anything completely. I can do what I can. So it's the whole, okay, I can MOT my car, but something else might happen. There's something else might jeopardize my journey. Sometimes then the key is not to control exactly what's going to happen. The key is to say, no matter what happens, I'm doing this journey because it means a lot to me to visit my friend and she's really important to me. Whatever happens along the way, good or bad, I will have my own back and I will do the best by myself. And I will believe in my own ability to cope with whatever's coming up, which is self-compassion and strength and confidence then you don't have to worry about what's going to happen. If you know that whatever happens, you will always do your best by yourself and your loved ones, and you will all get through together. Then that to me is tolerating uncertainty.
0: That's a beautiful concept. I like it as a reframe of something really beautiful that can come out of something that's really hard. My second question is you're like, figure out what you can control, do that. But what you can't control, let go of. Do you have pragmatic tips we can use to actually, like like when I'm like on the plane and I'm like, well, it's out of my control now, how do I let go of it versus sitting there and like listening to the dings and the pings and being like, oh, I can fly this plane if it starts to go down?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I would say often those threat thoughts, right? Those worst case scenarios where your your mind is playing like some horror story out about the plane going down and awful things happen and you're, and you're kind of living it and your brain is just sending all the messages out to set this alarm system off and the, get the adrenaline going and it's just awful. The more you focus on those negative things that could happen, the catastrophizing thoughts, the worse you're going to feel. But if you just try not to think about those things, without replacing them, then it's going to be almost impossible. Yeah. So you're still going to feel terrible, right? I'm trying not to think about a car crash. I'm trying not to think about a car crash. i try- And now I'm thinking about a car crash. Oh, what am I going to do? You send yourself in these spirals, right? Once I had children, I found there was a new anxiety about flying that I never had before because I suddenly had my three babies on a plane with me. And so I would focus on the risk because as a parent, you focus on risk, right? That's your job to do that. And so I have to Not only allow those thoughts to come and then go again, but to actively give myself something positive to do while I'm doing that. So I know I've made the decision to fly because I'm going to live a life that tolerates that kind of uncertainty in order for us to be able to travel as a family to give them a full life of all opportunities and stuff. So I've got my kind of value system around why I've made that decision to fly. And then while I'm flying, rather than just tolerating the fact that I'm having all of these catastrophizing thoughts, each time I have one, I'm going to label it as a catastrophizing thought and see it for what it is, which is one perspective about what could happen. And then I'm going to replace it with something. So I'm going to focus on talking to my kids about something or watching a movie or reading a book. And it's not easy, right? Because your mind will keep going, oh, but what's that noise? Oh, but what's that wing doing out there? It looks like it's shaking. Oh, uh, and, you, and you so your mind will keep bringing things up. What about this? What about that? What if? What if? And each time you've just got to acknowledge, thank you, brain thank you. I know you're trying to keep us safe and we're okay at the moment. We're okay at the moment. Thank you. And each time then you're allowing that thought to go and coming back to the thing that you've chosen to focus on, but you must have a thing to focus on, I think. Otherwise it's an impossible task.
0: Do you have any tips or tricks for subduing that moment of rising anxiety when you feel like you're like building towards a panic attack? Particularly, I think when you're in a public environment, so maybe you don't have a lot of the normal tools you would have available to you.
1: Yeah. So uh, something that doesn't require anything, and often people don't even know when you're doing it, is the breathing exercise. So I often talk to people about the idea of doing, so two in-breaths and one long (sighs) out-breath. So you're making that out-breath much longer or more vigorous than those two in-breaths. You don't have to do that for very long before you start to notice your body coming back down. And so even if you maintain a certain level of anxiety, because you are Re triggering that anxiety by the fact that you are, let's say, in a plane. You can stop, physically stop that from physically escalating into panic. In the past, when I've done job interviews, or more recently, when I did things like going on live TV and things like that, which in the moments just before you're about to go on and you feel your heart kind of pounding, and I just did a few and instantly felt more able to. So it just brings it down to a level where you can focus and manage. You've only got to do it for a minute or two. And then you might have to do it again in 10 minutes time because you've re-triggered something and then you just bring it back down. And just knowing you've got something like that, that you can physically control the biology to a degree. So you can slow that heart rate by slowing your breathing, which stops your body from feeding all your muscles with adrenaline and everything else. So you can just kind of manage that stress response.
0: You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. I feel like this company has been everywhere recently, and if I'm being completely honest, at first I wasn't sure if they were worth the hype. But I did a deep dive into their research and practices, and then I ordered a bunch of the products to try myself, and I have to say, I'm wowed. They simply make things that I haven't seen anywhere else and really beautifully. Anyway, if you haven't yet discovered them, I'm really excited to introduce you to Symbiotica. They're a health supplement company, but like I said, they make really different products than any other supplement company I've seen before. They have a lot of products, so I highly recommend that you peruse their website and take their quiz to find out what's best for your specific goals, but I wanted to call out a few of my personal favorites. First of all, the topical magnesium. I have literally talked about designing a product like this, so I'm both annoyed and appreciative that they got there first, but I've always wanted a topical magnesium spray that wasn't sticky, that felt good and luxurious to use, and that actually let the magnesium absorb into my body. If you have achy muscles or sore feet, this is literal heaven, and I also love it before bed to help with sleep. Also, I need to talk about their shower filter because I am probably the biggest fan of shower filters that exist. A shower filter is literally the best money that you can spend on your skin and hair care. Like literally, if you're buying expensive products and you don't have a shower filter, you're almost wasting the money because you're never going to get the results that you want. It's great for your health because you're breathing in all of that steam from your shower, but Oh my God, the vanity effect is huge. Literally, we bring ours on Nomad Life. When I travel and I don't have it, my hair is like chunkier and way less shiny and my skin is drier and it's just awful. And this is true no matter what the local water supply is like because at a minimum, all water contains chlorine, which is great because then we don't like get cholera, but it is so awful for our skin and our hair. The Symbiotica shower filter is super easy to attach to your existing shower head. It won't slow down the flow rate at all. It has twice the filtration of most other shower filters on the market and it lasts for up to ten months, so it's really one of those set it and forget it wellness hacks. Okay, I'm running out of time, but I also love the plant protein. If you're looking for a protein powder that tastes good, just mixed in water versus in smoothies, you will love this one. The Shiitake, which has a ton of minerals, so it'll help with hydration, energy, and brain fog. The mushrooms, which taste like fudge and are just so unbelievably good for every part of your body, and then the B12 and B6, which you might remember us talking about in the brain health episode, but it's just so key for your brain. It tastes super good. And I personally notice a huge energy boost when I'm regularly taking it. Of course, I have a special discount for you. Use code Liz to get 15% off site-wide or create your own custom bundle and get up to 45% off. Again, that's code Liz on symbiotica.com. Get the shower filter and thank me later. Now let's get back to the episode. Are there any willpower hacks that you could share? Let's say we want to work out more or we want to eat differently. Do you have any hacks for sticking to our goals?
1: People think motivation is like a personality trait or it's a skill. And once you get it, you've just, you're going to feel that way all the time. And it's not that way. Motivation is a feeling that you get. And so it comes and goes like any other feeling and you can't rely on it. So when you set yourself a goal, I would say make sure that goal is based on your own values and what you want and what matters to you rather than somebody else's. So, immediately, if it's based on something that's important to you rather than somebody else, that's going to help almost instantly. So, make sure you set your goals in the right way to begin with, but also stay in touch with why you've made those goals because you're going to need that in those moments when motivation isn't there. Because there'll be moments when you feel energized and motivated. But I don't know, that's kind of feeling you get on the way out of the gym, not on the way in, right? You know, when you kind of leave the gym yeah. and you're like, oh, I should do this every day. I feel great. But you never feel that way on the way in, right? You're feeling like you're just battling with it. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. So in those moments when you don't feel like doing the thing, whatever the thing is, you need to be able to get over that hump. And one of those things is to stay in touch with why you're doing it in the first place. Is that thing important enough that it's more important than the comfort? So like we said about getting up in the morning, that kind of thing. And also make it as easy as possible and make not doing it as hard as possible. So I don't know, I'll be keeping up with the exercise thing. But if that is to get up and move your body in the morning, put your workout gear right next to the bed so that all you've got to do is sit on the side of the bed and put your shorts on or whatever that is. You're doing those things that make it easier. And also tagging it on to something that you already do every day. Everyone cleans their teeth in the morning, right? We don't feel like we need to be motivated to do that. We just do it every day because we've always done it. And so if you tag this new habit onto the end of that, then it becomes easier to do than if you're just hoping to feel like it at some point and then you'll start. Make it something that you always do and then you go into it. And I guess there's a point at which you have to acknowledge that there is just this pain barrier to get through when you want to add a new habit into your life. There is this period of time where it's new to you, it's not habitual, and you haven't laid down those sort of neural pathways enough for it to be easy. So it's going to be full of conscious effort and energy, and you're not going to feel like it for a good while, I'd say a good few months, until you've repeated that behavior enough, when you didn't really feel like it, to lay down those neural pathways so that your brain can start to automate it for you. Like the cleaning your teeth thing. You don't do it only when you feel like it. You do it just because it's what you do and you've always done because you've repeated it enough. So have that faith that if you repeat something enough, it will get easier over time.
0: Do you have a specific amount of time for us that we can be like, it's going to feel really hard for two months, but then it'll feel easy?
1: Yeah, I think that's some really interesting research that says it was something like, I think it was like 66 days or something they said in the research, but I would take all of these things with a pinch of salt. These things are averages and stuff and research always has its limitations. But yeah, you could set that as a target. I'm going to do this thing for 60, 70, 80 days and then I'm going to see how much easier it feels after that. And undoubtedly, if you've managed to keep something up and get through those humps for that long, you're going to have laid down some sort of new habit in your life. If it takes a bit longer, it takes a bit longer. But again, there doesn't have to be that certainty with these things. You just, the more you're willing to keep going with it, Because I guess, I guess even now, right? There are times when you're a kid that you don't feel like brushing your teeth, but there are also times as an adult that you don't really feel like it, but you're more able to force yourself to do it. So you just have more practice.
0: Would you say if there's something we've continuously tried to incorporate into our lives, but continuously not been successful at, it's because either it doesn't align with our values or we haven't figured out which value it aligns with or how to make that connection in our mind. So then we're not actually able to find that motivation. Yeah, it
1: can be because it doesn't align with the values, but it could also be for lots of other reasons. Because, you know, when you spoke about willpower and things like that, there are really simple things that if you're not getting enough sleep, the very next day, that will impact on your ability to, let's say sort of willpower is like the, you know, ability to sort of resist temptation for something, for example. just one bad night's sleep, you are already less able to do that. So your willpower is already influenced. So it might be the values thing, or it might be that, I don't know, you're doing shift work and that's compromising both how you eat and how you sleep, which is causing your stress response to be triggered off, which is affecting your willpower. And so these things are often quite complex. I don't think there's ever one thing. There's often a network. It's like a web of things that all contribute in their own little way and they add up.
0: Mm. Which I think is important to recognize too, because sometimes we can be quite hard on ourselves when it's actually outside circumstances.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. We have that tendency, don't we, to sort of be critical or call ourselves lazy or something else. And actually, it's less helpful. Then if we look at something with curiosity, the process of what happens in therapy is we shift ourselves from criticism to curiosity. Like, yeah, I could really kick myself for this or I could stand back and look at it with a sort of bird's eye view and say, what is going on here? And yeah, there will be parts of it that you recognize you're responsible for. That can be helpful to do if you're willing to look at it. A bit more objectively and say, yes, what part could I play in making this better? But if you're not in a good place, then that tendency will be to just spiral into self-loathing and self-attack, which is not going to help.
0: But I do love the values thing because I think that it can play a really important role in motivation. I'm thinking about, it took me ages to make working out a consistent habit. And it's because I used to want to work out to like, have my body look a certain way. And then when I was faced with the workout that day, I was like, well, I don't really care. I don't care how my body looks that much to motivate myself to do it. But then when I switched working out to being about my mental health on a day-to-day basis, I was like, oh my God, it's so much easier to go into this workout knowing it's going to make me less stressed, more calm, knowing it's going to help with my anxiety. And now I've been able to make it this super consistent habit. So I think sometimes if you're having a hard time doing something, thinking about well, is my why true to myself can be a really helpful thought process.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's brilliant, isn't it? And I feel the same actually with exercise where I think when I was growing up, it was taught to be this sort of grind that had to be boring and painful and relentless and all in the pursuit of how you appeared to other people and taking up less space and all those kind of things. And now that I have a sort of newfound respect for my own body and I'm able to move my body and exercise because I know it will give me a happier life, right? Like all the things you said, it will make me less stressed. It makes me more sensitive to experience joy and pleasure. And it enables me to sleep better at night and communicate with my children in a calm way and all of those things. It just makes a difference. It makes my everyday life happier. When the idea of kind of exercise and working out shifted for me in that sense, it also meant that I didn't have to hate working out. I didn't have to do something I didn't like. So for me, I will choose a thing I like. So I love going out into green space, like in the woods or by the beach or something and jogging. And if I want to stop to take in the scenery and breathe for a moment or enjoy the song that I'm listening to, then I will because I'm enjoying myself and I will still move my body on the way home. But if I've had a few minutes to stop and rest on the way, then that's okay. And then because I enjoy it more, I want to do it more anyway. It's like a perfect timeout to me now. So you can create, but by making those little shifts around your mindset on something, it
0: can change the whole experience. Can you share one hack for being happier in a romantic relationship and one hack for being happier in our friendships? I think
1: something that gets talked about a lot online now is probably about boundaries. A lot of people maybe use that word without really fully understanding what that is and Once you're able to say no when you need to for your own health and well-being kind of thing, or you're able to hold a boundary and you're able to be clear about that, when you do that, you take the guessing game out of everything. You know, if you're maybe a bit of a people-pleaser and you want, of course, we all want to, you know, get everyone's approval and we don't want to displease anyone. We don't want to upset anyone. And that's normal and a lovely trait to have. But also... If you're able to understand what your limits are in terms of how much you're willing to give to others before it becomes to the detriment of your own health and well-being, and you're willing to communicate that, it feels like it could be excruciatingly awkward and awful in that moment. But actually, the other people benefit from it too. Clear boundaries create a sense of safety. I feel most safe with the friends that I know will say, no, I can't do that because of this rather than, oh, not sure. Uh, um," and I'm not able to say, do you know what? I need to just give myself a night of being by myself. If you're able to be honest with your friends or your partner about why you're holding a certain boundary and to look after yourself, after a while, they stop being negotiated. People just know where your boundaries are and those relationships become easier.
0: Clear boundaries create a sense of safety is one of the most powerful lines that I have heard said. I just think that is such an important concept and it is so permission giving to express and adhere to your own boundaries and to respect other people's.
1: People talk about it a lot in sort of parenting literature and stuff like that with kids that kids need certain boundaries in order to know that they're safe and what the deal is. But it's the same with adults it still helps with adults to know the parameters of a relationship or friendship and to understand that you don't have to guess. You don't have to risk getting it wrong. You know, you just know you can ask questions and get a straight answer. And let's face it, those are the friendships we feel most safe in, don't we? The friend that might not always say the thing we want to say, but we know they're going to say the truth.
0: Do you have any pragmatic advice, though, for that moment of expressing your boundary? Because it is so freaking scary. I have such a discomfort with discomfort. And so the idea of like that moment where I have to say what I need, even if I don't think it's going to be received well, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. So how do I deal with that moment? You can't eliminate it,
1: right? It is part of that moment until you get so used to doing that thing that it no longer feels awkward for you. So the more you're willing to be in that awkwardness, the quicker the awkwardness will disappear. And I can (laughs) relate, I would say I'm the same. I think a lot of us were taught growing up to make sure everyone around us was okay and and those kind of things. And so it makes it more difficult perhaps to sort of hold a boundary. But once you do, you realize it's easier than you thought it was. I think often our anticipation of it is worse than the actual, the moment passes quickly. People are
0: often less upset with things than we think they will be. I think that's very much held true in my life. And I just need to remind myself of that more. What about dealing with jealousy or comparison or just wanting other people's circumstances? I think we're faced with that so much on social media with our exposure these days. Do you have any hacks for dealing with that? I don't think any of us are completely
1: immune to that, especially in the world that we're in now that not only promotes it, but sort of puts it in our face every day. And and it's almost impossible not to slip into that. I think our biggest tool, our kind of superpower on that front is awareness, noticing when you're doing it. I'm sort of really onto that now in terms of being on social media and things like that it's part of my day-to-day work now. And I'm really aware of when I start to compare or think negatively about myself in comparison to someone else that I will unfollow and I will be almost brutally you know this done oh, no no we're not going down this way we're not going down this way partly I'm inspired by the fact that I have a daughter and where I might not be as courageous in looking after myself Personally, I recognize that she won't do what I tell her to do; she'll do what I do, and so, by looking after my own mental health and my own sense of confidence and building confidence myself, she will then be able to follow and I want that for her so much. If I'm scrolling, for example, I start to compare myself to some unrealistic image of which there are plenty online, right? If it's something I'm following, I will unfollow and I will switch off or I will take time. I didn't go online much at all today. I took a day's break and you instantly start to feel that shift, that difference when you're focusing on real life and in the moment stuff. And then you can just keep stepping out of it. I think if you're in it all the time, it's almost impossible to see the wood for the trees, isn't it? But when you get to see a bit of real life in between and limit time online, it helps hugely.
0: What if it's stuff in your real life, like a coworker who gets a promotion that you think you deserve or a friend who gets to go on these like fancy vacations that you wish you could go on?
1: I try to notice envy or jealousy and turn it into inspiration. So if there's somebody that I envy, I ask myself, what is it I'm envious about? What is it I want that they have? And therefore, how have they achieved it? Would I really like their job or their situation or whatever it is? What is it about that that I want and why? And if I really do want that, how can I move towards it? Or am I just getting down on myself and sort of really being curious about what that is? Because sometimes we get envious about something we don't really want anyway. We're just stuck in that process of being negative about ourselves. But if it is something you really want, then that person becomes a source of inspiration about, wow, this is someone I can learn from about how to move forward. You know, this is a direction I want to go in. So let me look at how they've done it. Let's see if I can learn from that experience. So you can turn it into something really positive. All emotions have... Information. They ha- all have some sort of
0: message that we can learn from and use in a positive way. We don't have to try and eradicate them. What if it's something you can never get, though? Like, what if you're envious of somebody who is a supermodel and you're like exploring it in your head or whatever, but you're like, it's because they get treated a certain way by every single person they meet, or you're envious of somebody who has a private jet and you're like, well, because they can have all these really wonderful life experiences that I can't have, but those things aren't going to be accessible to you ever. How do you deal with that? I think those are probably things that most people on earth experience, right? Because most people on earth don't have those
1: things. It's almost (laughs) reminding ourselves that they are outliers. And yes, life is unfair. Mm. Not everybody is going to have those sort of riches. I think sometimes when I've sort of slipped into those moments, I try to, it doesn't always work in the moment, but I try to remind myself how other people would wish for what I have. There is always someone with less than than we have. You can't feel that envy and gratitude at the same time. So I guess I tried to switch into gratitude, which making that different comparison to, gosh, there are millions, probably billions of people in the world that would love to be in the position I'm in. If I'm sat here in this sort of wonderful position looking on and wishing I had a private jet or whatever then the only thing wrong in that situation is my mindset and I need to shift back into gratitude if I'm not going to work towards that thing in terms of I don't feel it could ever happen then I need to shift my mindset into one of gratitude and looking at what I do have and if I'm not satisfied with what I have what is it I want instead it's probably not private jet to be fair as well of the people I've ever worked with I think some of the most unhappy of the people I've worked with have been the wealthiest. I think we get trapped into this idea, this sort of marketing frenzy that tells us if we can just have more and be more and do more and earn more and then buy more, that everything will be better. And in my experience of working with people from all walks of life, that's just not the case. It's just not. And so I guess that helps me to then shift that mindset from one of envy to a slightly
0: new perspective. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm not sure that I've ever met someone who's a bigger fan of therapy than me. Fun fact my dad is a psychologist, my mom is a psychologist, my sister is getting her PhD in psychology right now, and wait for it, both of Zach's parents are psychologists. Yeah, it's wild. Anyway, I've grown up with a front row seat to the transformative power of therapy, and I actually really credit therapy for helping me get through some of the darkest periods of my life, including when I was struggling with agoraphobia and daily panic attacks. The only rough part is that it can be so hard to find a good therapist. Sometimes it's because you live in a therapist's desert, and sometimes it's because therapy is definitely on the pricier side, and sometimes it's just because it's wildly inconvenient to commute like 45 minutes to an office for a 50-minute session, after which you have to turn around and commute another 45 minutes home. These are just a few of the many reasons I am so excited to talk to you guys about my sponsor today, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is truly changing the therapy game by democratizing therapy, making therapy accessible, affordable, and available to as many people as possible. Once you log on to betterhelp.com, you'll fill out a brief questionnaire. Then they'll use that to match you with a therapist who is best suited to tackle your specific needs. And they have more than 20,000 to choose from, so you'll definitely be able to find a good match. Then you can schedule secure video and phone sessions. And you get unlimited messages, which is so nice for those quick in-the-moment needs. Plus, if you and your therapist aren't vibing, you can request a new one for no charge at any time. What I love about therapy is it can be a long-term thing or just used for an acute issue. Whether you're going through a stressful period at work or planning a wedding, or you just want ongoing support because life is hard and it's insane to expect that we should be able to go through it alone, BetterHelp can help. There are so many studies about the positive benefits of therapy. I promise once you have your first session, it'll feel like such a sigh of relief. If you'd like to join the over 2 million people using and loving BetterHelp, go to betterhelp.com slash healthier together to get 10% off your first month. Again, that is 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash healthier together. Honestly, I just hope this is the tiny bit of incentive that you need to begin prioritizing your mental health. Sometimes we just need a little push like a discount code to take the steps that we know will change our life, but we've been putting off for whatever reason. I love you and I can't wait for you to take this journey. Now, let's get back to the episode. I love the idea that envy and gratitude can't coexist so that if you're feeling one, you can kind of force it out with the other one. I think that's really powerful. And I also love the idea of reminding ourselves of the anomaly of these type of like extreme circumstances because I think it feels obvious when you say it, but also I think we have more exposure. Like I know what the inside of a private jet looks like because I watch reality TV and I never would have known that before. And I see supermodels living their lives out on Instagram. And I never would have had that much exposure before. So I think reminding yourselves that even though this might feel almost like not common, but it feels more common than it actually is because we have that access and exposure.
1: Yeah, that we never would have had before in such a bombarding kind of way. And I think sometimes we've got to ask ourselves of the most valuable thing that I have is my time and attention. Why am I using it on this? is this feeding my Oof. life? Like, is this, yeah. nu- is this nourishing me and adding to my life? Or is it taking away? I have all these incredible things in my life. And yet I'm focused on this thing that's turning me away from that and making me feel unhappy. And that, I think that's probably one of the most empowering things for me in terms of my journey with social media is recognizing that I have this power to choose not to. And I don't follow... Those kind of things anymore. I, I didn't for very long, but I made a pretty radical decision not to. And it made an almost instant shift in how
0: I felt about my life. I love that. I think that's hugely powerful. Okay, I don't want to talk about this for very long, but I do want to touch on it briefly because I love the part of your book where you talked about fear of death. I think it's a hugely under discussed thing in our society. I think that not discussing it has really negative ramifications. So, could you share? maybe a few things that we could do to be more comfortable with and less afraid of death.
1: It's interesting, actually. Of all the people I've spoken to since it came out, I think you might be the first person that's actually asked about it, which is interesting in itself, right? That it's uncomfortable
0: to talk We're about. We're afraid to even have the conversation, yeah. Yeah,
1: it feels heavy, doesn't it? And it feels frightening. And, and it's a fear that we all have to face, right? It's the one thing we all have in common is none of us are getting out of this alive and death is coming for everyone. So it's like this certainty that we're all going to die, and this uncertainty that we don't know when, how, why, or where. And so there's this sort of dealing with the terror of the certainty of it, and then dealing with the terror of the uncertainty of not knowing what the future really holds. That can just cause all sorts of problems around how we live our lives and how we try to feel safe. And I say feel safe instead of stay safe, because often the things that make us feel safe aren't really keeping us that safe. One of the most sort of lovely things I read when I was researching this for the book was about the idea that we all die at some point is almost not the thing to try to numb out. It's the whole reason that we can be so grateful for today. And death in itself, however terrifying and horrifying it might feel, can also create meaning in living today that it doesn't last forever and we have no certainty about how long we've got or what happens and there's lots of disagreement about what that means so that becomes the meaning given that this doesn't last and i have no idea if this is the only life i get what am i going to do about that what does that mean for what's important to me what would you do if you knew you only had 20 days to live what would you do and the things that people come up with then can sometimes feel really radical but sometimes they're the simplest things as well sometimes it would be okay I'd spend more time with my family or I would do this that or the other I think blocking it out often doesn't help and people then often end up in the therapy room with one or another type of anxiety in some way acknowledging it and allowing it to help us create meaning in our lives is a path through it I think
0: well, and I'm sure you experience this in therapy all the time, but I even think literally just talking about things out loud takes a lot of their power away. And if you feel like you can't even speak about it, it gives it more power and makes it more anxiety-inducing. Yeah, that's so
1: true. And like you say, it's the one thing we all have in common, right? So it's something that everyone can relate to. And Everybody wants to die and, and we all want to live. And And we're all so wrapped up in this idea of how should we be living and how are we going to get it right? And actually, I think it's less about getting it right and more about, you know, it's a lovely mathematician called Hannah Fryer, I heard her say the other day that she realised through a process of illness that life was not a problem to be solved, it was an experience to be had. And that just stayed with me. And like, yes, of course, that death can really bring about that sense that This is something to enjoy the ride upon and
0: make it as meaningful as possible along the way. I love that. Can you leave us with just one homework assignment, one thing that we could all stop listening to this podcast and go do today to improve our mental health? Talk about stuff. If you've got a trusted
1: friend or a group of friends, see them more, talk about stuff more, be really open and honest about who you are and be curious about other people and their experiences if you're not a talker and you don't have a trusted circle of friends write journal write things down document experiences not with a sense of self-criticism but with a sense of curiosity what happened notice i felt that what led to that what was i thinking what did i then do did i follow my urges or did i act opposite to them or and just i think all of these kind of psychological problems that we can face are easier to deal with or possible to deal with if we have awareness about them first. So build your awareness, either through talking to people that you trust or through writing them down and doing that in private.
0: I love that. Can you tell us a little bit in your own words about your book, what you're doing on social, all of that? Yeah. So I share on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok,
1: just really short videos that are sort of insights from therapy or psychological research that can kind of help us get through those normal everyday human problems that we face. And the book is called, Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before? I only do sort of short form videos at the moment. So I'm limited to that 60 seconds. So the book has become the detailed step-by-step how to dive into each kind of different technique and strategy. So it's split into things like how to deal with stressful days or low mood or anxiety or relationship problems, motivation problems, all those kinds of things.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. We all very much appreciate it. Thanks, Happy. I really enjoyed it. I hope you loved this episode with Dr. Julie. We're giving away ten copies of Dr. Julie's amazing book, Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before? And entering is super easy. Just follow both Atlas Moody and at Dr. Julie on Instagram, then comment on my most recent post something that you loved or learned in this episode. The post doesn't need to be about the episode. I will be able to tell that you're entering by what you write. And we will have 10 winners, so you have some good odds, so definitely give it a quick enter. You can also get a bonus entry by sharing the episode on your stories and tagging both of us. Of course, whether you want to enter or not, I would so appreciate you sharing a link to the episode with someone in your real life. Dr. Julie shared so much wisdom in here that I truly believe could help so many people, and I really appreciate you spreading the message. It is the single best way that you can support the podcast, and I am massively grateful for it. If you are new here, make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss out on any future episodes. We have amazing ones coming up, including an episode with a science-backed technique to literally expand the capabilities of your brain and one of my favorite editions of our How I Learned to Love My Body series that I have ever recorded. Also, if you did love the episode, I would so appreciate a quick rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I am so close. Guys, I am so close to my goal of 2,000 reviews. And if only a teeny, teeny, tiny fraction of the people listening right now took a quick moment of their time to write one. We would far surpass that goal. It takes 30 seconds. I promise you just like click the little star button and you can write one sentence and ratings and reviews really help other people find the podcast. And I also read all of them and they make me feel really good. It is wins all around. I promise it's super fast. And I am so grateful for every single one. And also just a quick shout out of thank you to everybody who has already written a review. I massively appreciate it. Okay. I love you. And I will see you next week on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. It takes a lot for a health supplement company to wow me, but Symbiotica really breaks the mold. If you haven't discovered them yet, they make really different products than any other supplement company I've seen before. They have a lot, so I highly recommend that you check out their website and take their quiz to find out what's best for your specific goals. But I wanted to call out a few of my personal favorites. First of all, the topical magnesium. You all know I love magnesium, and I've always wanted a topical spray that wasn't sticky, that felt good and luxurious to use, and that actually let the magnesium absorb into my body, which requires DMSO as an ingredient, which I have actually never seen in any other product. If you have achy muscles or sore feet, this is literal heaven, and I also love it before bed to help with sleep. And then I have become increasingly interested in minerals. We talk a lot about vitamins, but adequate minerals are so key for energy. And unfortunately, it's become harder to get adequate minerals because our soil is so depleted of them. The Symbiotica Shilajit supplement is one of the best mineral supplements that I've found. And the research around shilajit is profound. There's robust human and animal research that shows it acts on ATP in a way that significantly helps restore and create energy, which is one of the biggest things that I love it for as a low-caffeine consumer. There's also robust research around its anti-inflammatory properties, its brain protective properties, and more. I think of it more as a whole food than a supplement. It's a naturally occurring resin, and I just mix a little bit of it into my afternoon tea or my decaf coffee drinks. And like all Symbiotica products, there are no additives, fillers, toxins, or artificial flavors. Of course, I have a special discount for you. You can use code LizMoody to get 15% off plus free shipping on subscription orders. Again, that's code LizMoody for 15% off on Symbiotica.com.